0: A Podcast One production.
1: Did you know that cars are the world's most recycled consumer product, And that 70% of that recycling is done by small businesses in Japan and the USA? Around the world, 27 million cars die every year. And every year, those cars yield 14 million tonnes of scrap steel alone. 80% of the average passenger vehicle can be recycled. And those vehicles tend to have been made in the first place with around 25% recycled content, mainly metals. Recycled steel, aluminium and polyethylene, along with soy foams and bioplastics, are commonplace in modern cars. So, it sounds like the auto industry is already streets ahead of other consumer industries when it comes to sustainable practices, right? But wait. How about that other 20% of plastics, carpets, fibres, liquids and metals that contain toxic chemicals and can leach into the environment, bioaccumulating in fish and other edible animals? The technical name is auto shredder residue or ASR, but back in the 1950s, some PR genius gave that nasty, shredded, poisonous waste a deceptively gentle name fluff. The chemical makeup of fluff is the stuff of nightmares, with the ability to change testosterone and estrogen levels in humans and animals for generations. Mercury, for example, is inside your LCD screens and lights. Mercury builds up in the systems of plants and animals and affects the human nervous system. But while Europe is very particular about how mercury in cars is disposed of, Australia has no laws around that at all. In this episode, I will be speaking to an award-winning Australian engineer who is pioneering new ways to create positive value from poisonous fluff. Special correspondent Drew Smith will return to his interview with Robin Chase to explore the challenges that get in the way of automakers becoming more environmentally friendly and how we might move beyond them. And my co-host Mark Pesci asks whether we are realistic in our belief that it really is possible to put vehicle pollution behind us. That's all in this episode of The Next Billion Cars. Your average new car has around 30,000 parts in a myriad of materials. It's been suggested that making a new car creates as much carbon pollution as driving it. Although since much of that cost is the creation of the materials used, for instance, 33% of that is metal extraction, the increased use of recycled metals in new cars will reduce that upfront carbon cost. Batteries are notoriously energy-intensive and short-lived, and electric vehicles need to be as light as possible in order to extend their range, so they're typically using more energy-intensive materials as well as composites like carbon fibre, which can not easily be recycled. Maybe you're starting to get a feel for what a complex duck and weave this sustainability gig can be. Remember the PR stunt when research concluded that a Hummer was more environmentally sound across its life cycle than a Prius? The premise then was the Hummer would last 35 years, it'd hold more people, it'd travel three times further than the Prius, which was apparently only going to last 12 years, although that life expectancy discrepancy was never actually explained. This rigged report demonstrates how hard it can be to accurately measure the impact of any product across its making, useful life and final demise. What we do know is that cars are far more efficient and sustainable over their useful life than the average house or the average smartphone. In the USA, consumers use 30% more petrol running their houses than running their cars. And Apple's environmental report for the iPhone X revealed that the X produces around 79 kilos of carbon dioxide over its useful life, and 80% of that is in the production of the phone. Meanwhile, the EU has required since 2015 that cars have 85% of their content reclaimed when the vehicle is no longer useful. But as the car industry is radically transformed by new transport options, new fuels and new business models, will those transport alternatives pay the same meticulous attention to waste reduction and recycling? New reports suggest Panasonic's battery-making operation inside Tesla's Gigafactory generates half a million pieces of scrap daily. So... In an industry renowned for its waste minimisation, including Toyota's lean strategy that's now standard waste-reducing business practice across multiple industries, will the new players roll back all the good work that's been done to date?
2: For over 100 years, automotive manufacturers have been refining the process of pushing metal, plastic and rubber down a production line to produce a vehicle that they then sell, or increasingly provide on finance, to customers. Then, of course, they service it. With well over a billion cars in circulation, this has made the industry an absolute powerhouse of the global economy. Volkswagen Group alone directly employs over 600,000 people, to say nothing of the millions employed indirectly by the entire industry through their suppliers. So at this point, two things come to mind. The first is that anything that is highly optimised to do one thing well tends to be fragile. And by fragile, I mean highly susceptible to respond negatively to external shocks. And when it comes to the automotive industry, the shocks, they are a common. The second is that although it's not like we haven't seen the industry weather these sorts of shocks before... This time around, there might not be so much government support to hand. You see, during the last global recession, governments with large auto sectors within their borders spent billions to prop up the house of cars. Schemes like the Premi in Germany and cash for clunkers in the United States, plus other forms of bailout, provided vital stimulus that kept the major manufacturers afloat as consumer spending and consumer credit took a dive. But these quick fixes didn't fix the fundamental challenges that now threaten the future of the industry. Saturated Western markets that can't absorb additional vehicle production, massive overcapacity in European factories, workforces that are trained to assemble internal combustion engines rather than battery electric platforms. We're still, for the most part, labouring with the exact same challenges in the automotive industry more than a decade after the last crisis. It's just that this time, regulatory pressure for change to improve the environment is growing and many governments, after years of austerity spending, aren't exactly flush with cash to keep the industry afloat. So, with Robin Chase co-founder of the car-sharing service Zipcar and founder of the new Urban Mobility Alliance, having gone through the last major upheaval, I started the second part of our interview by asking her why, in the face of what feels like an existential threat, car manufacturers haven't really changed.
3: Because they like their status quo business model. So, And it's very striking to me, if we think about the old business model was... I sell you something, and I make money on selling it to you. In the car sector, except for the luxury cars, they don't make any money. They make a pitifully small amount of money. Right. And to think, and I think, wow, we are we are taking resources out of the ground, transporting them across thousands of miles, manufacturing them in all these different places, transporting those to other places, reassembling them, driving them for a the short time, and then stick them in the ground for how much profit? Like nothing. Right. And so we are employing people, but let's employ them at a in a better way. So I look at it and I think, oh, it's it is such a wasted movement of atoms for so little gain to anybody. Right. So I, uh, yeah, I think they in the U.S. when we had our 2008 meltdown and the U.S. government said we're going to bail out the car companies. Um, in my. Tiny piece of the universe. I think I wrote one one opinion article that one op-ed. My what what I wanted them to do was no give these give all your car manuf- all your employees health insurance, guarantee them health insurance, and give them some unemployment, and say you can continue to work for us, or you can go work for someone else, and they will go work for someone else. But they are trapped and glued in their manufacturing jobs because they have no. In the US they have no options, they need their health insurance and they need their
2: lifestyle. So here's a little bit of context for you, I left my masters in automotive design in 2006-2007 and I joined the automotive industry for the first time and I started working in design strategy consultancy in Germany and I was watching this whole thing kind of collapse, right? And. What I saw was the German government paying consumers to trade cars in and I thought it was such an obscenity that the incentive wasn't to restructure the industry, the incentive was to kind of prop it up and keep it going and that's actually where I first came across kind of your work. So there's a nice kind of circularity to this and you could argue that we're perhaps facing into a similar situation right now if you look at what's happening in China.
3: Definitely. So in China, it was just so heartbreaking to me when I would say 2005 or 2006, they said, Oh, you know, our new industrial pillar of our economic growth is going to be the car industry. And I thought, No, no listen to us, you know, watch what we've done. Don't do that. And so they, they are I was just in Beijing in December, talking to the man who created that who was um, the cabinet secretary for transportation and in beijing this is an amazing number in 2018 they started the year with two hours of congestion per day and it's two hours and 20 minutes of congestion by the end of that year so in one year it was increased by that much and i said to him i said you really need to start doing more efficient use of transportation more public transit more high occupancy vehicle lanes and he said to me no, we need to keep selling cars, and I just was so shocked. So I, there is a huge—I mean, to be realistic—and we look, look at Uber and Didi and the loss of what it's doing to taxi drivers and the impending autonomous vehicles and what it's doing to driving. I, I want to be clear that there is an incredible link between climate change and urban viability and providing people's livelihoods. We absolutely have to do those two things in tandem and we have to shift from one one world of consumption to something that is much, much more sustainable. Definitely non-trivial, but we are making our choices right now that this consumption, and one of the biggest consumption items is cars, is the way we're gonna save our economies and we can know immediately and promptly from today that that will be our destruction. So it is. Not, it is. I realize it's a hard transition, but it's only going to get harder, and things only get worse. So we have to do it.
2: Well, and this kind of comes back to how we open the conversation, and it's this idea of equity and well, e- equitability. Uh, I'm not sure which is the right 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 term there, but. Um, you know, as we move into this shared mobility future, so many of the visions that 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 have existed to date have been to a greater or lesser extent, kind of exclusive of certain groups, like excluding certain groups. And it feels like there's an enormous opportunity here to actually provide mass transit in many cities where it doesn't exist in the true sense of the word, like it is transit for, for the mass. And you look at like the micromobility conference that happened uh, just a couple of weeks ago in California, and you know, of course, there's like some super, super positive coverage around it. But within kind of traditional sectors, it's like, ah, oh, this this stuff is kind of a joke. I mean, nobody's going to use scooters in cold environments, and yet when you look at the experiments that have been run, right?
3: So uh, there was there are a lot of issues packed into there. So the micromobility piece. I am really excited about, and numbers have now memorized, um, 50% of trips nationwide in the US are less than three miles. And so if you think about urban areas, it's gotta be 70% of trips are less than five kilometers. There's gotta be some, so I do think the electric scooters are an amazing opportunity. And what we've seen is that they are People are taking them up instead of their own cars, instead of using cars. That, those, that's what the numbers are showing. And I think when it's cold, uh, the street condition is definitely an issue, and I feel like those electric scooters should have bigger front wheels for sure. But that all said, I see it as showing a path and a potential. I think we're going we will, to, we will struggle and, we, and they will succeed. And so, one of the things I'm hoping to help do is to make that struggle shorter right. and help the safe success faster. Um, Coming back to the equity piece and jobs, though, I'm really, um, if I went to my most revolutionary self, which I'm going to more and more these days, capitalism, we've decided which things are worth paying for. If it's not monetized, it doesn't count as having value. So we can think about a whole bunch of caregiving work that is of no value. So when you take care of your children or take care of your old people or take care of or do after-school fun soccer, all of that has to be done for free because we say that's of no value. And I think, actually, those things have a huge amount of value. And if you think of cultural production that makes all of our lives happier and better, that has huge value, but we don't pay those people. And so we've, we've suddenly put a value only on the production of hard objects. And I think we could be... And so jobs matter, but we have only giving we're only counting jobs that are producing things that I don't think we want to produce. Now, it's
2: one thing to talk about environmental sustainability, and it's another to talk about the sustainability of our businesses. But it feels like we're looking at a change that has the potential to be so fundamental that it's impossible, if not irresponsible, not to explore the sustainability of an entire economic system and the culture that comes with it. Of course, Robin saved the best for last.
3: And we aren't paying money for things that are producing things that I think do give us value. So where does this money come from? One of the pieces, there's this nice statistic that I've forgotten, I no longer can memorize, but it was the, if you looked at the employees and the market value of Apple, Google, and Amazon, compared to today, for that today, and you compared it to the market value and number of employees of the car manufacturers in the seventies, like we are producing GDP with no with no humans. And so where can we get money? We need to be taxing in a totally different way. We should not be taxing labor. We should be taxing these things that are automated. So if we and all the, all the automation and the platforms that are enabling us to scale without employees, we need to tax those to provide money to pay for the things that actually do provide value. Mm-hmm. So it's a different direction, but there is value there. We just have to move the money around in different ways than we have today.
2: So just to wrap up, what makes you kind of almost uncontainably hopeful about... The situation that we're in. I mean, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of doom and gloom. Uh, you know, we could be facing into another so global recession. Hopes.
3: I have two hopes. One, I really do believe, as I mentioned in my talk, that the disruption that's happening in the transport sector is really remarkable. The more disruption we are causing, means that we have to reevaluate what it is, what it is that we want, what it is that we care about, and reinvent it. So, because it's so disrupted. We have to reinvent. So let's reinvent it. The direction we want to go. So that really is giving me enormous hope. And I also, and this is very trite, um, but I am, I am delighted by youth, by people who are in their 20s and 30s, who are not as tired out, or haven't done things ten times and it hasn't worked, and so they are willing to try again, where older people have gotten tired and say it's too hard, it won't work, i tried that before and youth are saying you know what, we're going to make this happen and you, it can be made to happen, we just have to actually do it and not be tired and not believe that we can't change things so I'm counting on you
2: Thanks Robin not feeling any pressure now none whatsoever Phew, now Let's see what Mark is up to as he takes a deep breath of his own and considers how much of what's in his lungs comes from cars.
0: We're talking about scrap metal and fluff and all of the waste on the next billion cars, but we don't want to lose sight of the most significant bit of waste generated by vehicles, emissions. Now, 50 years ago, people were plenty worried about nitric oxides getting into the atmosphere, and they would float up until solar radiation hit them, and they would turn into a brownish smear that floated over large cities. That's the origin of smog. Emission controls took care of that. So Los Angeles' air, for example, looks a lot cleaner than it did when I moved there 25 years ago. But although those kinds of vehicle emissions proved easy to control, it's the invisible emission of carbon dioxide that's proving to be a much, much tougher nut to crack. Let's start with some basics here. In 2017, and this is according to a report from British Petroleum, which we'll post to the website, the world generated a total of 33.5 billion tons of carbon dioxide emissions. It's estimated that somewhere between 25 and 30% of all CO2 emissions are generated by transportation that's of all sorts. So that could be a tractor on a farm, an aircraft, it could be a container cargo ship, could be a freight train. But the vast majority of that does come from automobiles. So let's say that perhaps a quarter... Of that 33.5 billion tons of CO2 that was generated in 2017 comes from cars. That means that cars contribute a bit more than 8 billion tons of CO2 emissions every single year. Now, in the 18 weeks that it's going to take to release all 10 episodes of this series, automobiles will have generated 3 billion tons of carbon dioxide emissions. That's a billion tons every 45 days. Now, with the rise of electric vehicles, that's looking more and more like something we can remediate. And and truly, that's one of Elon Musk's stated intentions from when he founded Tesla Motors. Use electricity, cut down emissions, save the planet. If only it were that simple. After all, electricity, it's a form of energy. Energy needs to be converted from some other form into electricity. And it needs to be done on demand because as useful as electricity is, it's very difficult to store it. So we generate electricity on the fly to satisfy demand. And historically, that's been done at very huge and highly polluting coal-fired power stations. In places like India and China and in a fair bit of Australia and in America, that's how it works. So that green electric vehicle, it really most of the time is sitting at the end of an electricity supply chain that produces a huge amount of carbon emissions. Now, we should be clear. It is still somewhat more efficient to generate electricity at a power plant and use that to power a car than it is to burn petrol in a car engine. Less CO2 is produced. How much less? Not enough to matter. I mean, best case, with the most efficient coal power, generation, and distribution systems. You might cut out half the carbon. But it's rare that everything is a best case. So, it's not actually clear how much carbon pollution we'd eliminate simply with a transition to electric vehicles. And the same thing is true for hydrogen fuel cells because making and storing all of that hydrogen is actually equally energy-intensive. Now, Unless we see a broad migration to renewable electricity generation, most of the benefits of electric vehicles, at least with respect to carbon emissions, most of those benefits will fail to materialize. Electric vehicles are not the whole solution. At best, they're only part of it. So instead, let's imagine an electric vehicle that's charged via a renewable resource, so solar or wind, And that looks different on the surface, but both solar and wind installations do require energy to produce and to maintain. Photovoltaic panels, while amazing at making electricity, actually take a lot of inputs in both raw material and energy. And that can actually work out to as much as 24 grams of carbon dioxide produced for every kilowatt hour of electricity generated. Uh, Tesla Model S, for example, it consumes a kilowatt every six kilometers. So if there's a billion electric vehicles that are driving at least six kilometers a day, and there's nothing unreasonable about that, we're talking about 24 million kilograms of CO2 pollution per day just to keep the vehicles charged, 24,000 tons a day, 8.7 million tons each year. And if I've even got my math slightly wrong here, and, and they will be, because these are all just back of the envelope calculations. We're looking at around 1% of the carbon footprint that's currently created by our powered by petrochemicals fleet. And that's really good. You know, that's cutting out 99% of the carbon emissions. Now, can we get there? Sure. But not overnight. You're talking about completely rebuilding the energy generation and distribution system. And that takes time, you know, probably 30 to 50 years. Maybe if we go at breakneck speed, 15 to 20 years. But that would take starting today and running from where we are right now and rebuilding the energy chain to supply electricity for electric vehicles. And... Until then, our driving will continue to add to the carbon dioxide levels in our atmosphere. So yeah, we're headed in the right direction, but we've got a long road ahead. So, Sally, when I first came up with the name of this series, The Next Billion Cars, it was because I ran a calculation that said we're making two cars a second. Basically, we're making cars almost as fast as we're making people now. And when I started to tell people it was only going to take 15 years to manufacture a billion cars, they got this horrified look, not just because there were so many cars, but because they realized there was going to be so much waste-associated with those cars. And, you know, we've taken a look at it here. The problem of automotive recycling and pollution, it's not as easy to solve as people are saying. Should we have any reason to believe that we aren't going to just get buried by that next billion cars?
1: Well, look, Mark, it's actually, um, in terms of sustainable industries, the auto industry is one of the most sustainable compared to, let's say, construction, consumer products. Ah, Drew, I feel like you're shot into silence there. (laughs) Are you disagreeing?
2: (laughs) No, I'm not so much disagreeing. But, well, I guess the question is more, is the industry going to get buried? Because in the last couple of days, there's been some data published here in Europe about the incoming CO2 regulations that are going to hit come 2021. And there was a lovely article in the Financial Times that showed just how big the delta is between where manufacturers are headed, i.e. up, their fleets are producing more CO2, and where they need to get to by 2021. So if we're not going to get buried, then the manufacturers are going to get buried by the fines, the legislation that are coming their way, particularly in markets like Europe. And... You know, we've been talking a lot about electrification. We've been talking a lot about hydrogen. Uh, if you're wanting to install hybridized powertrains or electric powertrains in small vehicles, that's going to add anywhere between 950 and six and a half thousand bucks to a vehicle with razor, razor thin margins. So we're actually looking potentially at the death of the small car.
1: I think it's more than that too, Drew, because as cars become more a computer on wheels, as we're bringing in so many other um, components from adjacent industries, you know, those adjacent industries haven't had the demand on them to have end of life minimums, 85% recycled or whatever the EU thing is. A lot of those other products don't. And so as they become more part of the car, as the car transforms into this sort of um, curated collection of bits and pieces, You know, I think because those industries don't bring with them the same level of um, consideration, they are just by default going to get worse.
0: So if we get to this idea where the car is now being very carefully engineered so that it can be more or less completely recycled, which is clearly where we're going to have to go for that billion cars, this then means that perhaps a lot of times you're going to keep the chassis of the car or the frame of the car, you're going to replace all the interior stuff and the panels, you might be swapping out the drivetrain, But you have this idea that there might be more flexibility here, which feeds back into this idea that at some level we're going to be manufacturing less cars because we're going to be reusing more bits in cars.
1: Look, it's a nice dream, but I just don't buy it. I think that um, time and time again, like as an architect, we went through a whole phase like Le Corb and everybody else trying to do this modular idea of what we'll do is provide a framework and people will change it and it will last forever. Never works. And I think... Look, we do have skateboard chassis, we do have commonality in cars, but I don't think at, you know, say 20 years time, people are going to say, oh, hey, we really should re-harness that thing because materials and technologies are going to be so far advanced. I mean, we're in an exponential age. Those materials and text from 20 years ago are going to have no relevance 20 years hence.
2: So I want to go back to the Egyptians for a second uh, because they uh, pioneered the use of a material called flax, right? And we're starting to see some really interesting developments in the use of flax, um, both as structural materials in the automotive space and as surface materials as well. Um, There's an electric Tesla racing car out there that has a flax, um, flax bodywork. And they've replaced a lot of the structure with flax as well and they've been able to strip 500 kilos out of the weight of that product and the the polymerized flax is actually pretty pretty good on a recycling perspective but sal you're waving your finger at me
1: what's going on there You know, again, it's like hemp fibre, flax fibre, all of those fibres are bound together with resins and cannot be recycled. Like, it's like carbon fibre. There's two places in the world that can recycle carbon fibre, and just because the fibre is a natural one, it's still a composite, it still can't be recycled easily. It sounds nice. You know, and there's a lot of cars using these beautiful bamboo and all sorts of really pretty things in there, but mostly you find that they're bound with a resin that means that they uh, they have a very limited shelf life and no recyclable life.
0: And and I remember, Sally, when we were at CES in January, you found someone who was actually doing some of that recycling and you were on them because you know how hard this is to do well and they admitted, yes, there's really only two places you can recycle the carbon fibre and all of this. So it's not that we, we... When people say, oh, we can recycle these things... There's an immediate assumption that we are and that it's widespread. And in fact, there's a huge gap between being able to recycle something and having all of the processes in place for it to be fully recycled. So
2: one of my favorite terms that I've learned since coming back to the automotive industry is thermal recovery recycling. Is that, does that mean burning? It's the low hanging fruit, babe.
1: <laughs> Let's burn it. And so when
2: I asked the supplier to explain to me just what thermal recovery recycling was, uh, he said, well, you know, basically we put it in a furnace and we recover the energy. And I said, right, so you're burning stuff. He was like, yeah, pretty much.
0: (laughs) All right. So are we stuck in a hard place here? I mean, Sally, Drew, you both work in the industry. What do we need to see? I think car makers doing, but we all do what you also need to see car buyers asking for if we're going to have an industry that is going to be as sustainable as non-polluting, as non-carbon laden as it has to be going forward.
1: What about if instead of saying the car has this long life, what if you said uh, more the cradle-cradle perspective of, well, let's say that the car has a shorter life. If a car has a shorter life, what materials can we have that within a space of, say, five to seven years, we go, here's this, it's predominantly recycled, perhaps it's a city vehicle, so it only goes slowly, so it doesn't need as much crash stuff, blah-de-blah, then we might have a new system that enables us to have this beautiful closed loop. What do you think, Drew?
2: Well, I think this is one of these areas where dieselgate is the gift that keeps on giving, or in fact, diesel prior to dieselgate was the gift that keeps on giving, because it was diesel that actually allowed the explosion of SUVs, these vehicles that are much heavier, much less efficient, to actually kind of be sold at a fuel efficiency that made them attractive to the mass market consumer. And I think what we're starting to see now is that as diesel falls out of favour, as CO2 emissions start rising... One of the best things that a consumer can do is say, actually, you know what? I'm going to go for something smaller. I'm going to go for something more fuel efficient and encourage a market for these smaller, more more fuel efficient vehicles.
1: I will say, though, unless we're going to construct like a little mini urban train... All these people that have three and four kids don't always have the option of going smaller. I mean, there's always going to be the soccer mum who has, you know, the friends and the kids and unless we have sort of clip-on bits that just extend it into some long caravan of, you know sub children, then there has to be this markup for these bigger bus-like cars.
0: And we've seen some of the designs for the sort of high-end electric bikes actually starting to take that form where there's clips, things, and you can have things carried on whether or not you get to an automobile, because an automobile has a whole other issue of safety and speed and all of this. But I like this idea of the car becoming something that's designed to have a short life. I'm thinking of it almost like a pair of sneakers, right? You know, it's going to wear out and then you can rip it all apart. You can recover the rubber, you can recover the pads and make another sneaker out of it.
1: I mean, do you know, Shigeru Ban is an amazing Japanese architect who constructs four-story office buildings out of cardboard. He made the um, the makeshift Christchurch Cathedral out of cardboard, there is no reason why a huge amount of a car couldn't be cardboard and wax.
0: Wow, that this just it it's funny because we think of that's how a designer might work when they're making a physical model, but I don't think even a designer ever thinks, oh well this is how we're gonna ship it.
2: Well, again, you know, we spoke to Chris Bangle earlier in the in the, in the season, and uh, one of the most iconic vehicles, I guess, that he oversaw the the production of at BMW was a it was a concept car called Gina, and Gina got rid of um, a steel skin. Or, you know, what might have traditionally been a composite skin on a show car like that and replaced it with a fabric. And in doing so, massively reduced the weight of the vehicle. Um, but because it still kept a uh, an aluminium chassis underneath, it still maintained a lightweight but strong and safe structure.
1: And that's so interesting because if you think of some of the biofabrics, like there's one now that's based on spider silk that can hold in suspension a Boeing jet. So you could actually have have a fabric with incredible properties in terms of strength and like literally just take it off afterwards and plonk it onto something else if it had a bit of stretch in it. I think Gina was an amazing concept so far ahead of its time. And I feel like that's where we could head, like a skeleton and all sorts of fabulous fabric around it. So it really
0: sounds like what we're doing is we're having two conversations at the same time. One of us is a design conversation about the new materials that are coming to to be in play around cars, some of which are batteries, but some of which are fabrics, some of which are, are structural materials. And at the same time, we're having this other conversation about what's the full life cycle of all of these materials, and that we need to have both of those conversations together, because if we don't, then we're going to end up burying too much of this. All right. Look, We're now at a point in our series, at the end of episode seven, where we've got a really interesting landscape laid out before us. And we can start to see how some of the future for what we're going to be in is either going to look like heaven or it's going to look a bit like hell. And a lot of that is going to be based on our choices that we're making as consumers, as designers, as buyers, as drivers, as passengers, and in our next episode, we're going to do our best to paint a bit of a picture of that heaven and hell if we get things right and if we don't. The Next being Cars was written and presented by Mark Pesci, Sally Dominguez and Drew Smith, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia, producer Alex Mitchell and sound production Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, go to podcast1.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search the Next Billion Seconds on Apple Podcasts. This is Mark Pesci
1: and Sally Dominguez. And Drew Smith,
0: thanking you for listening.